Hello and welcome to the Low Tox Life Podcast. I'm Alex Stewart, your host, and today is show 133. Gosh, 33 was a while ago. I am thrilled to invite uh, Professor Alfred Poulos onto the show with me this week. And uh, we have a wonderful new uh, show supporter, Goodness Me Box, is with us this month. And I know a lot of Aussies have enjoyed this in the past. And by the way, New Zealanders can as well. So at least there's a couple of countries we can look after with this one. Goodness Me Box, for those of you who haven't heard of them, is uh, Australia's leading healthy food sampling box. And while we always talk about moving from products to produce, sometimes kids want to look like their lunchboxes look like other kids and it's nice to throw a little something in the mix that looks similar as well as the many other challenges that you might have time-wise convenience-wise and I'm all about meeting people where they're at so you can go on a journey we don't all need to be perfect whatever perfect even looks like and goodness me box is there to help you sample uh, a broad range of things like baking mixes, uh, granolas, kombuchas, things like that, and uh, so you know what's out there and available. They are strictly non-GMO uh, and have a huge set of guidelines around their food boxes, uh, so it's a real thrill to have them on the show helping you guys out, and you have $10 off your first box. Uh, now, I do recommend you at least go on a three-month subscription so that you see a broad range of what's on offer and in the boxes because it does change from month to month. And um, with a three-month subscription, you also get free shipping, which is uh, a saving of about $21 in itself. So the box itself is just $25 for the full size, but they actually have a completely new nut-free kids box as well. So think uh, all the newest stuff on the um, market or really good uh, things that uh, appeal to kids and uh, no nut butters and, and um, nuts in there at all. So that one's only $11.95, which is amazing. So head to their website. Your code is LOWTOXLIFE10 and you have $10 off a box this month. Uh, so give it a go and I can't wait to see what you think. Now on to uh, Professor Alfred Poulos. We have a wonderful chat today. He's written a book uh, called The Secret Life of Chemicals and even though he's a retired professor, once you get chatting to him and all of the little books and booklets and papers he's continued to write after retirement, shows me that retirement's a bit of a hazy word when it comes to this gentleman. Uh, he is um, born in Australia of Greek parents. He's worked at research universities and institutes uh, and hospitals throughout UK, USA, Canada and Australia. He has his PhD from London University, a law degree from Adelaide University, and a professorship from Adelaide University. So to be able to bring his uh, critical thinking mind with incredible uh, scientific background um, that spans decades, I think what we get is a really open look at uh, what concerns we have for the environment, what concerns we have for what we bring into the environment man-made that could potentially be affecting us and our health. And we talk about quite a few different examples today. So I hope you enjoy the show. Something that we talk about briefly is glyphosate or Roundup, um, the active ingredient in Roundup. 
and Professor Poulos's uh, research hasn't gone deep into that area. So if you're left kind of thinking, oh, I really want to know more about that and has Alex covered it on the show before, I've popped in the show notes the uh, past shows that speak to Roundup and glyphosate, the active component, uh, Dr. Zach Bush, Professor Michael Antonio, and uh, Professor Jonathan Latham have all been on the show to discuss their concerns about Roundup before. So that gives you a really broad ranging look at um, why we should be throwing a little caution its way or a lot. Uh, anyway, so it's a really wonderful chat today. I, I so appreciated Professor Poulos's perspective on so many things that he's looked more closely into with his book, The Secret Life of Chemicals which is also in the links of the show notes today. Enjoy the show. Hello, Alfred. How are you? Hello. Hello, Alex. <laughs> nice, nice to see you. Meet you. Yes. Yeah, it's well, absolutely lovely. Um, I want to start by asking you about your, your life, how you came to be a scientist and what those early years as a scientist looked like for you that then sort of paved the way for you to start realising things about environmental toxins later on. Uh, I was uh, interested in chemistry at school, you know, interested in chemistry. And I love when you mix chemicals together, you get all these colour changes. They're very attractive, really. So I studied chemistry at the university together with other science subjects, you know, biology, etc. And I became a biochemist. Uh, a biochemist is someone who looks at chemistry and biology, in, in biology, biological things. Mm -hmm. So I did that, and then I went overseas and did a PhD uh, looking at the synthesis of a group of substances that are called plasmalogens. Now, back then, I didn't realise the significance of plasmalogens, but plasmalogens are present throughout our body, and what they are are what are called ether lipids. They've got this very unusual chemical structure. And from there, I went to London where uh, there was a man called Guy Thompson all those years ago, and he was looking at the synthesis, how the body, our bodies make ether lipids. But in order to do that, it was difficult for him to use human tissues, hard to get human tissues back then. So he settled on using, guess what, a slime mould. So you'd take a slime mould and you'd get it to grow, and he'd found already that slime moulds could make these etholipid substances that are present in the brain and present in the heart. So he eventually showed how these uh, slime moles made plasmalogens. And from that, we learned that, yes, human beings make plasmalogens in exactly the same way. So I went from that and I was over there five, six years in England, a year or so in America, offered a job eventually uh, went back to Sydney University for a couple of years. Then I was offered a job in Adelaide. And there was a man back then called Tony Pollard. And Tony, Tony Pollard was setting up what was called a National Referral Centre. And he was very interested uh, in people that had genetic diseases that affected um, the, uh, if you like, the synthesis of fats and the synthesis of carbohydrates in general. Um, so I was appointed as an expert in fats, and John Hopwood, who became eventually the South Australian Scientist of the Year, I think it was, I don't know whether it was last year or the year before, he uh, studied uh, mucopolysaccharides, okay, so the two of us. He was looking at carbohydrates. I was looking at fats. 
And what we started doing was firstly diagnosing patients that had some of these rare diseases. Now, in the past, these patients would see the doctor, a clinician, and the clinician would say, oh, yes, this patient has some sort of disease. I don't know what the disease is. I don't know whether it's genetic or not. The disease, let's call it infantile amorotic idiocy. Infantile means kids. Amorotic means blindness. Idiocy means mental retardation. Now, back then, there was no diagnostic method. We now know, fast forward, you know, 40, 50 years, infantile amorotic idiocy, as it was back then, is dozens and dozens of different, distinct diseases. And there were specific biochemical abnormalities in these patients. So there were dozens of biochemical anomalies that led to uh, infantile amorotic idiocy. And what we started doing was firstly diagnosing and secondly uh, doing prenatal diagnosis. So we would take amniotic fluid, take the cells from the amniotic fluid and grow up the cells and then do an analysis on that. And that would be taken at around about two to three months, pregnant woman. Uh, we would do the analysis and we'd come up with uh, an answer. Was the patient affected or not? And then there would or wouldn't be a therapeutic abortion based on you know, the mother, the mother's you know, religious beliefs. So that's how it sort of started. And then I started doing research into these particular fats, the ones that are found in the brain, the ether lipids, the same ones that I studied while I was doing a PhD, but lots of other substances. And then finally, just to finish it all, finally I became very interested in a part of the cell that is called the peroxisome. They have all these different components of a cell. Most people haven't heard of peroxisomes. But one of the things about peroxisomes is it generates hydrogen peroxide, for instance. Mm -hmm. It makes certain fats. It breaks down other fats, etc. So there were patients that, for whatever reason, genetically, couldn't make peroxisomes. So this, com this particular component of the cell was missing in these patients. So they ended up with these dreadful diseases. And one of them uh, that I worked on a lot was called Zellweger syndrome. So anyhow, that's, that's how it's... And how would a, a person with that syndrome present? Like what would be going on? Severe for mental retardation mm -hmm. from birth. The child would survive for maybe six months, maybe nine months, and then die. Then there were forms of Zellweger syndrome where they weren't quite so affected. There might be one or two of the peroxisomes present in tissues, just enough to keep them going, but eventually they'd die. Then there would be other patients who'd have an abnormality, not in making these peroxisomes, but in a particular uh, pathway in the peroxisome. And over the years, we've learned there are dozens of different pathways that, that, that are present in peroxisomes. So, uh, you know, that, that's how it all went. And I, from that, um, I did all this research. I published papers. And then... Um, after doing this for about 20 years, I thought, I'm really interested in the law. Uh, and I started a part-time course, uh, at legal training, and, and I worked as a scientist full-time. And I did some uh, studies, and I became a lawyer in the end. I, you know, I graduated with law, but I continued in the medical research area. Then finally I retired. Mm -hmm. So that's the story of my life.
Yes. Now, as far as as far as why I'm so interested in this area, I guess you're going to ask that question. Yeah, I was just about to say. So, you become yeah. a scientist, you become a lawyer, you retire, yeah. but then there's this whole other body of work that awaits you. How yes. did you then start to become interested in the environment and the chemicals yeah. present? Um, I guess it it started um, a long time ago. Um, when I was quite young, I went to visit my grandmother on this remote Greek island, Gastelorizo. And I remember thinking, even back then, looking at her diet, it was so basic. I remember thinking, how, how has she survived? And yet we've got all this other, this so-called food, and, and her eyesight was phenomenal back then. She was well into her 80s. She was terrific. Then I began thinking about that. And then one day, I'm, I'm a cook too. I've done a lot of cooking over the years. And I remember one day after I'd, you know, f- almost finished the law relatively recently, I went into a supermarket. Now, I'd made apple pies myself in the past. And I looked at the labels and there were, you know, dozens of, you know, ingredients. And I thought, well, what are emulsifiers? Mm. What are colours? What are flavours? I don't add any of that when I cook. Why do they need to add that stuff? And what is that, that stuff? What does it do? Does it's it do cheaper anything? than apples is what it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, the thing that got me was, you know, the synthetic flavours. Yeah. What the hell are they? So, so I got to think about that. And eventually I thought, well, I'm going to do a bit of research. And I started writing books. And the first book I wrote, probably... 13, 14 years ago, it was a book called The Silent Threat. And in that, I looked at all these different additives and what were they and what did they do and what was the impact. I looked at water, what was in water, and I was amazed at what was present in the water that we drink. Mm. I was amazed at what was in the food, what they'd added to the food. I was amazed at the fact that they would take an oil and do all sorts of dreadful things to it. You know, they'd they'd make essentially uh, make it uh, more solid and they generate these trans fats and you've probably heard of the trans yeah, fat. Yeah. And I began to ask the question, well, are we more likely to become sick because of this? So I did the research, wrote the book, uh, The Silent Threat, it was called. Yeah. And then after that, I started writing other small books. I became more and more interested in nutrition. And I wrote books on, uh, well, there's one here, to be or not to be a vegetarian. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's about, I was fascinated with vegetarian diets. And, you know, are they good? Are they bad? So I did all that research, self-published that little book. I've written books on uh, fish oils. Are they good? Are they bad? Uh, books on dairy, good or bad? There's all this stuff out there about dairy and how bad it is. Uh, so, it, so I became more and more interested in food and what was in food. Mm. And then finally... Um, I thought, well, what I want to do is rewrite the silent threat but extend it so that I'm not just looking at what's in food, I'm looking at environmental chemicals as well. So I started writing that book. I did the research. started, what, four years ago and gradually wrote it. The book's got close to 700 references in it. Just about all of the references, and and you asked me that question before, how do you know what's a good good work and what's not a good work, mm. about nearly 700 references. The references are all from 
and you would know what peer-reviewed journals are. Yeah. So they'd go off to a, a journal and they would send it off to a couple of reviewers and the reviewers would look at it and then pronounce whether you know, the work is worthwhile. If it's worthwhile, they publish it. Yeah. Uh, so I, I sort of did that and uh, I looked at all sorts of things that I hadn't looked at in the earlier book. Uh, for instance, um, I didn't know about paper, the manufacture of paper. I thought, you know, there's all this paper, paper everywhere. How is it made? And uh, then uh, I was... I was appalled at the chemicals that were generated that ended up in the rivers, these chlorinated compounds that ended up in the rivers, taken up by you know the animals that lived in the rivers, etc. Uh, I did a thing, a chapter on radioactivity and um, radiation. I thought, you know, this is interesting. I was amazed at the different radioactive substances that were present in the environment. Now, people say, for instance, there's radioactivity in bananas. You know, there's small amounts of radioactive. There are natural radioactive elements that people have been exposed to through generations. It's the other stuff that's gradually been uh, released into the environment. Yeah, there's... it's kind of like, um, you know, a lot of people say, oh, you, you don't need to do all this detoxification. That's what your liver's for. And sure, that's what it has been for since we were designed in the human body. But as a biochemist, I'm sure you'd be able to shed some light on this. Yes, the liver is incredible. Yes, the liver can detoxify incredible amounts of uh, of things every day, but it can't possibly have predicted what it would then come up against and what has been released into our daily lives over the past concentratedly three decades. Um, do you have a comment on that as a scientist? Oh, I'd, look, I'd love to I, hear your thoughts. As a scientist, I mean, I've been thinking that, mm. uh, okay, through the millennia, at the genes that that regulate, you know, the production of proteins that do the carry out these processes you talk about, the detoxification, are used to certain chemicals that are in the environment, natural chemicals mm. that are in, in the environment, and there are plenty of those. But the stuff that we've created uh, over the, you know, the millennia, particularly over the last hundred years. Uh, no microorganism anywhere on the planet has seen any of those things, and some of these things can't be broken down, you know. So we've got all these extra chemicals that we're exposed to and the processes for breaking them down are really not very good. We haven't as yet. You know, it might take another, you know, 10,000 years to, for, for there to be changes in our genes, gradual changes, to cope with these things. I mean, an example of that would be fluorocarbons, the, the presence of a carbon fluorine. Uh, it makes it difficult to break down. The presence of a carbon linked to chlorine is hard to break down. And where are we seeing carbon linked to chlorine in an everyday product, just to give people well, the visual? Well, some of the pesticides. You know, pesticides, the pesticides, okay. Yeah, yeah. And in addition, when paper is made, um, they use, they chlorinate, they have done, although they're now trying, they're aware that there are these uh, you know, problems. They're now trying alternative processes but when you chlorinate anything swimming pool for instance mm. you know they used to chlorinate if you chlorinate water is chlorinated as soon as you chlorinate something you're introducing chlorine into an organic substance and the ways of breaking those bonds carbon chlorine are not so good you know it's slow that's why ddt for instance accumulated in the environment um 
And for people who don't know, DDT was one of the earlier generation pesticides that was then subsequently banned um, for its because toxic it effects. Yeah. yeah, but many of the other industrial chemicals, many of them, particularly ones let's say from paper, particularly one, any sort of chlorination process, can generate substances that are harder to break down. Uh, how do these things break down? Well, firstly, they break down, you know, sunlight, uh, heat, etc. But we depend on microorganisms, the fungi, the bacteria, to break these things down. And if they can't, then, you know, they sit there, they accumulate. Or if they can, do it very, very slowly, again they accumulate. If they accumulate, they end up in water, of course, and from water they can end up in food, they end up in soil, and from there they're taken up into the food and we're exposed to them. Okay. That's what happens. Now... I've seen quotes. Now, I don't know how true these quotes are. Again, this isn't peer-reviewed research, but there have been quotes in the internet saying in America there are up to 80,000 different industrial chemicals. Mm. 80,000. I know. Now, and and yeah. the some of the latest uh, stuff I was reading recently when I was preparing for my book tour last year was that of those 80-something thousand, you know, let's call that a rough figure, that are commonly used, only 200 of them have been independently tested by the Environmental Protection Agency, and of those 200, 10 have been banned. So we're working to to a 5% ban rate when they do actually extensively study one of the chemicals. Yeah. Yeah. That is frightening. Yeah. yeah. But, but there again, getting back to what I said earlier, we develop methods in our bodies, in our livers, for breaking most of the substances we were exposed to. But there's been this exponential increase in the last, you know, 100 years, particularly in the last 20 or 30 years, mm. of substances that are so different from what, what our bodies were used to that I don't know that we're coping that well with them. Now, there are methods of getting rid of them, okay? They accumulate. You take them up. They end up in your body. Your body says, no, I don't know what this is. I can't do much to it. So what I'll do is get it into the blood from there, send it into the kidney, and let's get rid of it. And that's what the body does. But in the process, what sort of damage is there? And we really don't know. Mm. A big advantage, like the, the big benefit, I guess, is that our exposure is really to small amounts of these things. Okay, They're not large. But I can talk about that as well at mm. some point. And it really is about the cumulative effect of all of it being together in a soup, right, that we're exposed yeah. to. It's the, it's the fact that you've got dozens of different substances that are present. Like I, I sent, you know, Anthony Amos. I take, you know him, do you? He's a yeah, friend yeah, of yeah. yeah, Yeah, well, I sent him a paper I saw literally a couple of days ago, and this is looking at, you know, the chlorination of water. And there are dozens of these different substances. Now, um, there are so many. Amounts are tiny, but there are lots and lots and lots. Now, in my book, plug in the book now. <laughs> That's okay. We've got the link in the show notes for anyone. I, I was amazed when I did the research. I thought, oh, yeah, the amounts are small, no big deal. Now, and when we say the amounts are small, we're talking about, in some cases, millions of a gram of something, not very much. But, but... Firstly, uh, it's not just one substance. There are dozens and dozens of these. Secondly, the exposure we have is over a long period of time. 
you know, it's not when you're doing studies with rats and mice and you're checking to see whether something is toxic. It's generally short term. Uh, you know, occasionally they might have longer term studies, but generally it's short term. And the other thing about them is that they're, um, they lost the thread of what I was saying, unfortunately. No, that's okay. Uh, well, we were talking about the toxic soup, like the accumulation in the of the multiple the, amounts of things that the we're to. Yeah, exactly. The fact it's not one, and we know, and in the book I quote references where it's clear that there's synergism. For instance, some of the organochlorines can synergize with other substances. So there's all this going on. So, and the other thing is, we've now discovered, we now know, and there are lots of papers on this that there are mechanisms, well-described mechanisms, where tiny, tiny, tiny amounts of substances can produce effects. Mm. And in the book I talk about what's called priming. Priming is where you have a tiny amount of something binds to an immune cell, and the immune cell then is primed. And I said in the book it's a bit like a balloon that's that's all set to burst, and then along comes, uh, you know, a, a chemical and, and it bursts, okay? It produces this massive effect. In order to prime, you don't need very much. You, can, you know, you need millions of a gram sufficient mm. to prime. There's another process called hormesis. I don't know if you've mm. heard of hormesis. Yeah, but please explain it for people who haven't well, heard hormesis, of it before. We don't understand it. You know, we really don't understand it. But have something like glyphosate, for instance, you know, in large amounts, it kills plants. In tiny amounts, it produces quite unexpected effects via this process of hormesis. It can actually stimulate plant growth. It's those sorts of things. So you've got synergism, you've got hormesis, you've got priming. So, and you've got the fact this is a long-term exposure. Mm. And more to the point, and um, I think this is really the take-home message, we can treat cancers. We can treat autoimmune diseases um, reasonably well, but we do not understand how cancers develop. How do they develop? Parkinson's disease. How does Parkinson's disease develop? Where does it come from? We don't know. Now, what we do know is that environmental factors are very, very important in the development of disease, and every single disease that's been described is due to an environmental factor, and our genes, combination of the two. So is it possible that some of these unexplained diseases, and there are dozens and dozens of cancers and everything else, could be due to this? You know, the, the traces of these chemicals that are present in the environment that are producing effects. Uh, so that's what I've begun to look at. That's what I'm interested about. Mm. And most of the research at the moment, medical research, is in trying to cure these conditions. Yes. There's not so much research in really trying to understand how does someone at the age of, you know, 15 develop a cancer? Where does that come from? Uh, why do women develop breast cancer, you know, at all sorts of different ages? Um, it's, it's this. We know that the genes are important, but there's some other environmental factor that is critical. And why not chemicals? Because we do know that chemicals can cause disease. We know from drugs, you give someone a drug, they've been tested, they've gone through phase one, phase two, etc., etc. They've been tested in animals, no problem. 
On the other hand, some individual responds completely negatively to that. And that's because of genetics. Now, the theory is, my theory, it's a combination of factors. People maybe develop cancers for exposure to something, whatever it is, and they have this innate genetic susceptibility, which we don't understand. That's what it's all about, I think. Mm. That's like our message. Yeah, I don't, I don't think you're too far off with that one, Alfred. <laughs> I would agree. Um, and I want to kind of dig into a few of um, the, the the chapters, if you like, or the topics that you cover in the book. You've talked about um, chlorine already quite extensively, so I'll leave that one. But I'd love to talk about quite a hot topic. It sort of ties in with our desire to use less plastic in general as well, which is a beautiful movement that's going on at the moment. But what did you find when you started to research plastic packaging and the sort of primary risks, I guess, that you could potentially see based on buying things that are packaged in plastic as food sources? Well, what what you get, you remember that program, War on Waste? Mm-hmm. I don't you saw that. That was a good pro and told you about plastic and how it accumulates and it's everywhere. But what didn't come across is the fact that plastic, okay, it sits in the environment for a long period of time. There are very few bacteria can break it down. Um, there's heat, there's radiation, whatever. It's a very slow degradation process. But plastic almost invariably contains lots of other substances. Mm-hmm. There's additives. There's initiators, there's colours, you know, if if there's printing involved, there's colours. There's all these different things that are present in plastic. So as it breaks down in the environment, it releases these chemicals. Now, we don't know what they do. Honestly, we don't know what they do. So what do you do about plastic? Uh, Is that the question? Yeah, absolutely. And, well, I guess, did you come across some of the endocrine disruptors in your research as well? Yeah. Yeah, of course, BPA is, is, you know, is the classic. Phthalate is another illustration. Mm. But again, there's mixtures of these. You know, I was, I was appalled. There was a, there was a paper that I published where they looked at, I think it was, um, they looked at this plastic debris that had accumulated on a beach somewhere, and they found, you know, dozens and dozens of different substances in this debris. Mm. So when you think about what's used, <clears throat> all these different substances that are added to plastics in one form or another or to the packaging you can see you get this mixture of chemicals that are always in the environment in small amounts so the conclusion is we really don't know what plastic is doing to us uh, we know that some of these substances that are added <coughs> are endocrine disrupting substances and they may have an effect on uh, birth weight for instance i mean there are some suggestions about that they could affect uh, you know the Development of the testis, for instance, in children. Um, they could affect this, what's called the anogenital distance. Mm. So that's an abnormal normal development. You've probably heard of that. I'm glad you mentioned that match- because it's quite a, yeah. a frightening study. I've had six women who've done our course on uh, reducing environmental yeah. toxins privately message me to say that they had a boy born uh, with those uh, issues and, uh, and that they were, I mean, you... you can't imagine the devastation when you realise that perhaps all those scented candles and and squeezy packets that you've been eating from could potentially have contributed to that. I mean, it's a very tough cross to bear for a parent. 
And it is a concern. If, if you can demonstrate in a test tube that some of these substances are endocrine disrupting, means it affects you know, the way the hormones act in our bodies, then it's a source of concern. But again, again, uh, the amounts are so small. Again, that we're told, well, the amounts are so small, and if you use these amounts in animals, uh, they don't produce an effect. You've got to use much larger amounts to produce an effect, and that's always what they do. You know, mm -hmm. the, the governments and the companies, that's always what they do. They basically turn it back on you and just say, well, you prove it. You prove that it's causing problems with this anal genital distance, for instance. Mm -hmm. You prove that it's affecting... Um, you know, sexual development. You prove it's affecting the numbers of sperm. You prove it. Very hard to prove. You hard can prove it in animals. Yeah. And, and, and so how do you feel as a career scientist with the idea that so much ends up on our shelves with so many of these questionable chemicals that have to be, uh, that get to be, um, I guess, innocent until proven guilty. Like, is this an area of innocent, as a lawyer as well, you could yeah. appreciate this. Why do we wait for so much um, unequivocal proof um, rather than being cautious? Well, uh, I guess <laughs> I've, thought, I've thought a lot about this. Yeah, okay? it's a very loaded question as well because yeah. I have well, some... Take plastic. Plastic yeah. is a illustration. Okay. What is the alternative? Okay, what is the alternative? Um, plastic is everywhere at the moment. Our credit cards are plastic. Mm. Uh, you know, everything in the shop is plastic. But what do you do instead? What do you have instead of plastic? You can have glass, but glass breaks. Uh, it's not always convenient. It's heavier. Plastic has got some terrific characteristics. Um, so. Okay, what is the alternative? This this is the problem that I'm grappling with, you know. So instead of plastic, instead of a plastic container, for instance, you go and you buy yourself um, some detergent and it's in a plastic container. Well, okay, if you don't have it in a plastic container, what do you do? You put it in a bottle, mm. glass bottle. What else could you put it in? Well, maybe you can go into the supermarket and there's great piles of it, like you used to do years ago, and someone would shovel plastic into a paper bag. There are some incredible uh, zero-waste shops now where you do, it is back to that old day where you come with your empty jars and your produce bags and you fill them and then you take everything home. And, and, uh, and so there are solutions and more and more accessible solutions too, which is really encouraging. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So let's talk about pesticides because this is a bit of a hot topic and you talked about a couple very briefly at the start. Um, where do your main concerns lie with the pesticides currently used in our food system? Uh, the, the main concern is uh, they are present in, in our food, and you probably know this because you've done a study of it. Uh, they're present in our food in tiny, tiny amounts. Uh, most days we probably take in a tiny amount of some of these uh, substances. Now, they are almost certainly taken up into the blood and again almost certainly they are taken up into the into the brain now i, I know this because um, in the book i quote a reference where a small amount of an organochlorine was actually detected 
in that part of the brain that's involved uh, in Parkinson's disease. Mm. So you can, they are actually taken up into the brain. They can cross the blood-brain barrier. It's more of a concern, I think, for children. And the reason I say that is children have a blood-brain barrier that's uh, not fully developed. This means that uh, with adults, for instance, um, you get a chemical in the blood and it doesn't necessarily go into the brain because of this so-called blood-brain barrier. But with children, it's not fully developed. So they are more susceptible to some of these things. And some of these chemicals can interfere with these delicate processes that take place in the brain. So there are some people who are more susceptible because of their age. Mm. There are other people more susceptible because of, uh, if they've got, say, a liver problem, and there are people out there whose liver is not working quite so well. So they're susceptible if, you know, if these processes don't work so well. And then finally, you've got this other class of people that have polymorphisms. These are these slight differences uh, in genes that lead to proteins that are formed that maybe don't work quite so well. And a classic illustration of that is not necessarily in insecticides, but in drugs, and I mentioned these drugs, one of them would be, say, statins. Mm -hmm. Statins bring down blood cholesterol. But some people, for whatever reason, um, their ability to break down uh, some of these substances, in, in particular statins, uh, are reduced. The statins accumulate in tissues and can cause muscle problems, muscle weakness. Yeah, this happened to my oh. mum. Absolutely yeah, that. Yeah. yeah. So there's one illustration. And when I started talking before and I was sidetracked, uh, I keep doing this. <laughs> it's it's the kind of topic where it, is, yeah. it welcomes a lot of tangents. So it's all good. Yeah. We're, we're all used to the good tangents. Yeah, I, I think that there are... You know, I started talking about drugs and how they go through phase one and phase two, etc. But even when they go through all that, and of course they're the animal trials at the beginning, and I was involved in some of that work, uh, with the, all this work that you do as a scientist, and they're eventually released into the marketplace. And when they're released, um, I'm sure when statins were released, they didn't know at the time that for some people they would create a problem. Mm. Some of the some other drugs have been banned completely because of these devastating effects they've had on people, and that's because of these polymorphisms, these slight differences in genes. And I've predicted because I've given you three A courses, and I've predicted that in the future, probably where you work, if you're going to be exposed to certain chemicals, they will do an analysis of your genes and find out whether you have the right sort of polymorphism that can break down some of these substances that you're exposed to. Um, so wow. genetic susceptibility is very... Yeah, I, 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 I have absolutely no doubt. This is a new area. You've mm. probably heard of it. Mm. It's called pharmacogenetics. Yes, absolutely. So you go to a doctor, the doctor says, yes, you need this, but mm, I'll have a look at your genes. No, I won't give you that because you probably won't break it down very well, etc. It'll accumulate and it may cause problems to you. 
So that's, I think, the way, that's where we're going. Mm, I actually, about five, I think it was about five, six years ago now, got the CYP450 um, gene test um, and uh, there's one snip of that gene that is um, low, very low functioning. And so that means that I can literally then go onto the MIMS database with my doctor, let's say, who might be considering giving me a particular drug for something. And if it goes down the CYP452D9 SNP, then I shouldn't take it because it will accumulate in my body. So I absolutely agree that pharmacogenetics is the way we need to start uh, looking at things when it comes to prescription medications, either working for someone or severely hindering their health. Because I think there's just so much potential to actually tailor and custom treatments to people once we have a bit more literacy around what they can and can't manage. So I think it's going to become really, really, really important um, in the future. Mm. So back to pesticides then. See, I'm, oh, yeah. I'm helping us get back <laughs> on topic. Um Can you share, um, you know, there is a lot of information uh, or or a lot of confused people, shall we say, out there around um, a herbicide called Roundup with glyphosate as the uh, active component of Roundup. Um, What did you find and talk about in your book that, uh, that was particularly worrying to you in that regard? Um. I've talked to Francis Murrell about it. We've had discussions about that. Um, yeah, I, I quote in my book uh, the fact that I think it was the South Australian, was it the agriculture people, claimed that glyphosate um, is not toxic, okay? You can, you can take grams of it and it won't kill you. Um, but there's a, there's a source of concern, again, because of this genetic susceptibility. And also the, another factor. The other factor is you never take uh, glyphosate by itself. It's often mixed with other substances. You know, there might be, you know, half a dozen other different substances. There are lubricants, there are, you know, wetting agents, all sorts of different things. So I, I honestly don't know. It, it, it may be the glyphosate itself that's a problem. It might be the, uh, there might be toxic substances present, you know, contaminants that are in the glyphosate. Um, uh, I honestly don't know. I, I really can't answer that question. Mm. It's it's a difficult one. Um, yeah, I'm sorry about that. I, no, I, no, that's okay. That's I know that, fun. I mean, there are reports, for instance, in the literature that uh, they may, uh, glyphosate may bind uh, to uh, metals, for instance, and create maybe problems in the kidneys, possibly. There are suggestions as well that glyphosate may interfere with the microbiome. But again, many of these reports have not been, uh, you know, duplicated by some other studies. Um, and that's always a concern. So I, I can't answer that question. Um, it seems relatively safe on the surface, but there's all this stuff coming out. Mm. that says, well, maybe it isn't. Maybe it's carcinogenic. Yeah. I don't. No, I appreciate your um, your objective view. I think that's really important to stay objective in, in times when the science hasn't actually 
emerged to be a definite on either side um, and something that I do on the show uh, thanks to um, the wonderful people in Fran's circle in this case Professor Michael Antonio who published that study on yeah. on the kidney issues uh, with glyphosate um, I think it's just something that worries a lot of parents and uh, it, it's one of those things that because there are a few dubious reports out there and some dubious findings that maybe it is worth our caution well, you uh, you see, I, I'm aware that in America, for instance, there are people apparently have developed cancer. Those are leukemias, I think. Yeah, Those non-Hodgkin's are... lymphoma. Yeah. Okay. Mm. And you think, well, yeah, okay, um, but it's so difficult to prove. How do you prove it? Mm. Uh, there's lots of studies being done where apparently it doesn't it doesn't create a problem for for people. It's apparently not poisonous. It's not toxic. How do you prove that Joe Blow has got his cancer because of the glyphosate? How do you prove it? Mm. There are so many variables, and that was one of the questions you asked about some studies as opposed to other studies. When you're looking at something like that, um, there's the firstly, there's the age of the person, there's the diet the person is on, um, there's this. You know, the physical activity, what else are they exposed to, etc., etc., and it goes on and on and on. How do you prove that it's the glyphosate that's done it? How do you? Mm. And I understand that uh, someone in America has been awarded damages. Is that correct? Yes, that's right, on two different counts now. How did they prove it? Mm. I'm, I'm actually not too sure. I'd be fascinated to read, uh, you know, the court documents mm. to find how they proved it, because I can't see how they proved it. And by the way, again, um, you're looking at, say, organic food, right? I, I quoted a section in the book about organic food. How do you know um, that organic food is, is better for you? So what you do is you look at people who eat just organic food and you eat people who don't eat organic food and you compare their health. Mm. Well, I mean, there are so many variables in that situation because... Um, people have got to have the same diet, and they don't. Um, some people work harder than others. Uh, their environments are different. It isn't just the organic food. It's what's in their house. Uh, are they taking drugs? Are they taking supplements? It just goes on and on and on. Mm. So when you're comparing those two populations, you need to be sure that you are actually, uh, you've eliminated all those other possibilities, and you've just focused on, the organochlorines and the organophosphates that are present in their blood as the cause of whatever condition they've got, and it's hard to prove. It, it really would be is. very hard to, to get people to sign up to do a study like that and say, yeah, I'll eat the stuff that's not organic. <laughs> well, though I quote a report that uh, of some work that was done in Denmark, uh, mm. and they looked at uh, a number of uh, people who ate organic food, and they compared their health with another population than didn't, and that's what I'm saying. And they found there's very little difference in those two populations. And yet we are convinced, many of us are convinced we're healthier if we eat organic food. But it's not just organic food. It's what you eat that's so important as well. It's mm. not just traces of pesticides. Absolutely. I mean, I always joke with people when I give talks that you can buy organic Oreos these days, so really... What's um, an organic Oreo? I like it's it's like that chocolate processed chocolate oh, yeah. biscuit with yeah. the little white middle. Yeah. 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 So organic doesn't necessarily, you know, you can get organic gluten-free cheesy puffs, but they're still highly processed food. 
one of the questions, just if one of the questions you asked earlier um, when you sent us an email was about studies. Mm, Yes, so this is a really good time to talk about that because so so many people undertake their own personal research and sort of, you know, we... We, it's so hard to see who commissioned the study, who paid for the study. How do we trust what comes out in these big articles that make sweeping claims? And scientists uh, also often are biased. Uh, depends on who's paying them. Mm. Uh, they've also um, published some work and um, it looks like maybe what they published a number of years ago is going to be disproved because there are one or two papers. So they're desperate to publish something that, that acknowledges what they did earlier. So even scientists, you know, they, they, sometimes they're not terribly honest. Depends on who they're working for, etc., etc. But the best reports, I think, are the ones that are peer-reviewed mm. because someone has looked at them a scientist looked at them, and often it's, uh, or mostly, it's someone who works in the same area uh, and understands the research and the complexities of the research. And if you can't believe then, who do you then believe? And it always goes off to two or three reviewers. So that's why I believe that uh, that's the best, uh, best lot of data, is peer-reviewed work that's published in a reputable scientific or medical journal. Mm. Uh, reluctant to accept what's in Google. Yeah. Really. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And it is really an art in itself. Yeah. Becoming good at investigating those sorts of things so that you make informed choices based on uh, fact rather than um, rather than following the latest um, media darling type study that's been cherry picked, etc. Now, let me just tell you one more thing mm. that relates to relates to uh, you know scientists publishing work etc. I worked for years uh, on fats, and particularly my area of expertise was in polyunsaturated fats, and in particular omega three fats. Oh wow! Okay, so so I knew quite a lot about omega three fats. Omega three fats are present in very high concentrations in flaxseed but also in fish, right? So then there were these studies published, what, in the 60s, uh, showing that uh, apparently the Greenland Eskimos, who had a diet that was rich in fish, uh, had a lower incidence of cardiovascular disease. And as a consequence of that, the fish oil industry started to develop and it became huge, absolutely Mm. huge. Based on that, those studies, those studies were very, very important, and it was the impetus. Impetus. Okay, as the years have gone by, I noticed literally a year or so ago, they began to question that. They began to say, well, they looked at the Greenland Eskimos, but which Greenland Eskimos did they look at? Did they look at the ones that lived in the cities, or did, did they look, look at the ones that live sort of out of the cities? And if they looked at the ones that lived out of the cities in different sort of areas, the results are different. So they're now saying maybe those studies that people believed implicitly you know, 30, 40 years ago and was the basis for setting up the entire fish oil industry, maybe it's not correct. Maybe, you know, they picked the wrong people. They did the wrong analysis. So it's that sort of stuff that even work that's accepted for literally generations may later on be shown to, well, you know, maybe there are problems with it. 
Mm. And do you think it's all it's our responsibility, whether you're a scientist or non-scientist, to remain open to the fact that science discovers different things over the time? I think I think we have to be open, but it's very very frustrating for ordinary people. Uh, I mean, for instance, uh, another illustration: eggs. Right, yeah. eggs. <laughs> like the most confusing food on the planet, oh, isn't it? You know, one minute uh, there's all this cholesterol in it; it's got saturated fats, it's bad for you. Then they tell you it's good for you. Then they say it's bad for you. So it's backwards and forwards. You yeah. don't know where you are, and that doesn't help people. Either. No. Where did you land with eggs, as someone who studied fats? Oh, I think I think eggs are you know, healthy, but they're like anything else. You have one every now and again, but if you have, you know, two, three, four eggs every day, bound to cause problem. It's, you know, you, you have a, you try to have a varied, balanced diet, mm. I think. And I'm, I'm happy to eat the odd egg every now and again. Yeah. And if you think back to your wonderful grandma brimming with health in, into her late 80s, what, uh, what kind of food did she eat? Was it cl- classic Mediterranean simple diet? Yeah, it was Mediterranean. She grew, she had figs in her garden. She had lemon trees, everything, all the vegetables she ate. There weren't a lot of vegetables. Uh, everything would have lemon on it. Uh, lemon is healthy. It's vitamin C and other things in it. Uh, olive oil, only olive oil. They didn't use anything else. Um, fish, they ate fish. They catch fish, uh, meat. The island of Castellorizo is remote. It's tiny. Its population, when I visited her all those years ago, was about 300 people. Uh, if there was any meat in the island, it would have to come from roads. Oh, right. So they have meat every now and again. So it was a fairly basic diet. But whatever they ate wasn't loaded with all this other stuff that's added to our food. Mm in our supermarkets you know it was it was plain food yeah and plain and food. i think it's about rediscovering the magic of that plain seasonal um produce driven diet really you know we've been yeah. we've been led to believe it's boring because there's all this exciting new stuff coming out on the supermarket shelves but really if we get back in touch with nature and her beautiful marketing calendar then um, there's a hot new launch every month. There's something fabulous coming out yeah. for us to eat from, yeah. from nature's garden. Yeah. I think you know, one of the best things we can do is reconnect to the magic of that for our health. I think so. Mm. Yeah. Um, now back to environmental chemicals, I want to ask yeah. you about one more before we wrap up today, and that is uh, the PFOAs uh, and the PTFEs that have kind yeah. of become the next generation of those um, polyfluorinated carbons. Um, what what have you found in the research that was particularly alarming about those? I think what's what's alarming about them is, you know, the evidence that, that maybe they're affecting the thyroid mm-hmm. is, is alarming. The, the evidence for that seems to be a little bit stronger than, you know, than normal, and uh, I worry about that. So any interference with thyroid function is fairly significant, so I worry about that. I know that the other thing I worry about is the fact that, uh, and I mentioned this very early on, that you don't break them down very easily. Mm. They accumulate, also they accumulate in fat. Um, they're probably in small amounts in our adipose tissue, so uh, they're taken up into uh, 
into animals and they end up in the fat in animals and they end up as part of our diet. So it's all this stuff that is a bit of concern, I think. And you also, a question you asked is, well, they realise that maybe that the, the compounds they've got now are potentially, possibly harmful, possibly, maybe. So let's develop some different ones. But even if you develop the different ones, you've still got the problem of uh, the fact they don't break down very easily, and that's why you know that's why they're so important to industry. Mm. And so, when they don't break down easily, uh, what the issue is whether it's original generation nonstick or subsequent generation nonstick with the slightly less harmful ones. Um, if they're flaking off in your pan and into your scrambled eggs in the morning after a few months of using them, and you know someone in the family scratching them with a, a metal utensil or whatever. So those can still end up in our adipose tissue. Is that what you're saying? Well, yes. Yeah, uh, okay. They can end up, yeah. Um, our bodies, if we can't get rid of them, we find ways to store them mm. out of harm's way, basically. Yes, yeah. So in the adipose tissue. Uh, yeah, and, of course, we don't know what they do, what these things, and, and some of these other environmental chemicals that are fatty. We don't know what they do in the adipose tissue. I think for years we thought adipose tissue was just completely inert. But, you know, it generates chemicals. Uh, you wonder whether, for instance, uh, you, know, you look around at the population, there's so many people overweight, you wonder whether part of it is some of these substances that are present that are, the term that's now used is obesogenic. Mm. So some of these environmental chemicals, it's thought they could be obesogenic. In a sense, they you know that they promote uh, weight, weight yeah. gain. So, yeah. So yeah. Does that answer the question? Yeah, yeah. No, frightening stuff, really. <laughs> it's all good. Um, so, Alfred, you you've obviously created this book, and the link will be in the show notes for people today uh, to go and grab it. I really urge everybody to do so. Uh, I know this community is passionate about environmental toxins. It's something we look at as a community often and daily, If in fact. Um, what would you like to see the scientific community embrace? How can we get this alarm sounded more, um, more loudly so that we can get big multinational companies to act faster? Um, I, that's a really good question. And the reason it's a good question is I joined, uh, you know, two years ago, the Climate Health Alliance. Mm -hmm. I joined them because I thought that they would be interested in these chemicals that are you know, present in the environment, end up in our food, etc. But they are much more interested in chemicals that interfere with, uh, with our weather. Um, I think the emphasis now appears to be on global global warming that seems to be the thing but as far as i'm concerned what's just as important even more important are these environmental chemicals that may be producing effects here and now and we need to do something about it and people need to know about that and i don't know what sort of organization uh, would be interested in that i'd love to be involved with an organization that's focused not on global warming but on these environmental chemicals and how they are affecting our health now, in the here and now, not in 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Mm. Now, people mm. are becoming sick, I think, 
because of our exposure to some of these environmental chemicals. And we know that's the case because there are so many examples within the occupational health sector where people are getting sick because of their exposure in tiny amount, to tiny amounts of, of chemicals in their work environment. So I don't know whether you've encountered that. But oh, absolutely. I mean, one of the first... are only interested in that. That's all. I yeah. want to know. Yeah, and I think they're all linked. Like we need to look at all of it because if we look at the environmental chemicals, then we actually start to live better, more conscious lives, which only then impacts um, climate change in a more positive way through that avenue. So it all matters, absolutely. Yes, yeah. yes. If I can help Alex in any way, if I can help you in any way, I'd be pleased to. Oh, how wonderful. I feel like we've got a new ally, guys, in, in Professor Poulos. I think this is a really uh, wonderful um, beginning of raising more awareness and seeing what we can do. Uh, it's something that came up again and again on the book tour last year was I started to challenge the community more to whinge up. Um, and I'll explain that. So basically, you know, it's lovely that we've developed a critical mass of people who have an awareness about this and feel that we can comfort each other about how terrible things are. But we must not rest on our comforted laurels. We actually then need to start taking more and more action so that things change. It's not enough to just feel like, oh, yeah, I know, isn't it terrible? There's a comfort in that, but at the same time, it doesn't actually change anything. So anyone out there who's listening today who thinks they have an idea, I think this would be a really exciting thing for us to continue to um, explore as a community what this could look like. Is there an organisation? I guess that was my question. Mm. There's a couple of there's a there are a couple of uh, there's a, um, a, a chemical action network uh, which I can put you in touch with and um, a, a couple of people doing some cool things. There's a wonderful uh, guy Michael Shade that I um, interviewed a few months ago who is the publicist for the Safer Chemicals Safer Families uh, outfit over in the states and they do incredible work to put pressure on retailers who range certain products um, to, to de-stock them from their shelves. And that then sounds a fantastic alarm back to the manufacturers of the products. So there's some really cool stuff happening. And I think it's about starting to organize more smartly so that, uh, we, we get stuff done, right? Yeah. 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 Well, well, it's really, really good to talk to you, Alex. Uh, I've, uh, I've enjoyed the session. I, I must confess that, that I haven't found it easy talking to a talking to a computer <laughs> normally uh, I, I've given a series of talks to U3A for instance yeah over the couple of years and uh, I quite enjoy that it's hard this is the first time I've used Skype so oh wow how exciting I feel privileged not, well perhaps <laughs> it's good for me to do that yeah. yeah look I think you know when I was thinking about how to educate uh, you know it sure I could have done a whole bunch of community um, community workshops and boy I did a lot of those but really you know we have to use this amazing technology that we have to broadcast the messages louder and further um, because it's there it'd be crazy for us not to use good old Skype and um, and broadcast this to 50,000 people this month don't you think I think so I think <laughs> 
So I, on that note, I shall say thank you so much for joining me for today's podcast. Uh, everybody who's been listening, please do go check out the show notes. You have um, past and present books uh, of Alfred's there and, uh, and anything that we mentioned uh, along with the Safer Chemicals, Safe Families and the local action groups as well. Thank you so much for listening to today's show. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoy having these conversations and bringing them to you. Now, where can you find me and Lotox Life from here on in? Well, you've obviously got lotoxlife.com and there we have everything beautifully organized into food, home, body and mind topics as well as kids and a whole bunch of free downloadables and resources to help you, inspire you to take community action and there's amazing A to Z recipes there if you're ever getting a little bit stale in the kitchen and a whole bunch of articles that I've written. You can also find me on Instagram at Lotox Life and also on Facebook by a page the same name. I make everything super easy, Lotox Life, so you can find it really, really simply. Thank you so much to everybody who leaves a five-star review over on Stitcher or iTunes or wherever it is that you tune into the show. And also to let you know that you can join us on Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Lotox Life and come join the private Lotox Life Club. In there, over time, more and more cool stuff is about to be added. It's a place where we can continue the conversations, chat about the weekly show, you're going to get bonus Q&A and all sorts of things over time. I explain everything over on Patreon, so I encourage you to check that out. And in the meantime, I'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.